Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians from the land which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation and recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Monday Breakfast. I hope everyone had a great weekend. And we've got a pretty busy show this morning, a lot of um, exciting guests and, and content to cover. So let's get underway. Welcome, Layla and, and Jackson. How was your weekends? Good morning. Excellent, as always. Mm, great. Yeah, mine was pretty good. Um, I'm just trying to remember exactly... What happened? I'm having some difficulty, um, but I think it was a pretty good weekend. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I was the last. I work in a high school, and it, it's now school holidays. So, um, to all of those parents this morning listening, um, who are going to have their kids um, all day at home, and I'm sure you've got some exciting activities planned to keep them uh, engaged. And you know, my heart goes out to you, but um. To all my fellow education workers, huzzah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, on the show this morning, um, you know, we, we're going to start in a couple of minutes with alternative news, and I don't think we're going to cover all of the things that we all kind of indicated we'd like to cover, but we'll try to get through a couple of things on that. Mm. Um, and then what have we got after that, Jackson? Well, I'm just doing a quick follow-up chat with Steve Wilson from the Friends of Stony Creek. Uh, people may have heard... Um, after last week when Friends of Stony Creek as well as some other uh, environmental groups around the western suburbs asked the Andrews government why they hadn't sent anyone down to inspect the damage of uh, Melbourne's worst industrial fire uh, since Coot Island. Um, and now there has been an announcement from the state government uh, for a significant, or a million dollars, to clean up uh, the creek uh, on top of $600,000 from Melbourne Water. So just going to talk to Steve about... Um, what that means for the creek and whether it will be a help and whether you could even start working on it at the moment considering how toxic the space remains. And then we've got um, someone coming in to talk about a new theatre. Yeah, piece. it's a really interesting piece by the new uh, by the Belarus Freak Theatre Company um, who are banned uh, in their home country of Belarus for their political activism and they've come to Australia specifically to write with some Australian creators about what they're dubbing the Great Australian Silence. Um, around Indigenous affairs, Australian history, these types of things, and they've created this new work, uh, which is on as part of the Melbourne Arts Festival. Uh, I think it starts on the 28th, or that, sorry, that's a preview. It starts on the, the 3rd of October. Um, it's called Trustees, and we've got one of the Australian uh, collaborators, uh, Niharika Senapathy, who's coming into studio to talk to us about that. And then we have Over the Wall, and this week Over the Wall is looking at the NDIS, and I think it's going to be the start of a 
bit of a series on looking at the NDIS. Um, and after that, um, we've got Kerry coming in, and she is involved in a play that's about to start, which is called A Conversation, uh, David Williamson play. And, yeah, it explores um, some issues, I guess, around, um, you know, violence and looking at solutions to uh, violence and looking at community conferencing. Um, so, yeah, I think that's it's a really interesting... Looks, it seems like a really interesting production. Um, so I'm really interested to talk to Kerry about that. Hmm. And at the end of the show, we've got um, Melanie Poole. Yeah, Melanie Poole from the Federation of Community Legal Centres. Um, she's coming in to talk about the kind of uh, law and order arms race we're witnessing um, in Victoria in the lead up to the election. But particularly, she's talking about um, mandatory sentencing for uh, people who attack emergency services workers, which extends mm-hmm. from paramedics, but also to police, um, security forces, uh, fire, um, and and women. Um, and yeah, just some of the unintended consequences that mandatory sentencing can have. So it'd be good to have a chat to Melanie about that, as well as the uh, anti-association laws that the government have just moved on, moved through as well. Which you could say is a path to totalitarianism. You could. Uh, well, is- yeah. Let's um, let's play. Um, let's just play a little uh, announcement, and then we'll go straight into alternative news. Are we on a path to totalitarianism? Are governments and technocrats developing technologies that hand them greater control over our lives? In the face of such far-reaching webs of control, what are we to do? With speculative minds Lizzie O'Shea, Timothy Eric Strom and Jacob Grech, we're going to be exploring these questions and more through a live panel discussion. Tune in on Wednesday, September 26th from 7am on 3CR Breakfast, where we contemplate the societies of the future. Let's reclaim our minds from the cultural engineers. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty. Say you're gonna have to get right down to the real nitty-gritty. Let's get right down to the real nitty-gritty now. One, two, nitty-gritty now, yeah. And it's time for alternative news, and it is eight oh, oh sorry, seven oh seven uh, a.m. And I hope you're enjoying your Monday. And what have we got on alternative news this morning? Well, I just wanted to give a shout out to the Footscray Community Arts Centre as well as the uh, recalcitrant Maribyrnong Council for making good on uh, after they tragically uh, removed a disability, a disability pride artwork from a prominent wall in Footscray uh, last year, um, in December last year. Uh, it was on the Footscray Exchange building, which was owned by uh, Telstra, and they uh, took it down, I think, like overnight without any community consultation, thinking that it was... Um, you know, uh, illegal art, even though it had been, uh, you know, this huge project to put it up. But uh, just on Thursday, um, happily, uh, Larissa McFarlane, who's a, a well-known artist in the West uh, who works in uh, disability 
um, Act- Activision, who's a uh, disability advocate, uh, alongside Carolyn Bowditch, who's the new um, executive director of Arts Access Victoria, launched this new wall um, in Footscray. And I just thought it was a really, like it was a beautiful event. You know, there are maybe 100 people um, standing out in really nice sunshine on Thursday afternoon, looking at this art, these you know awesome artworks and just having a chat about the kind of path to get there and you know the importance of visibility for people with disability who are often kind of erased from public discourse and you know, not thought of. I mean, I was listening to Liz Wright's program on a, a Wednesday afternoon last week and she had a guest on who was talking about you know, there was a promise last year uh, that, or, you know, a few years ago that all tram stops in Melbourne would be, or 90% of tram stops would be um, accessible for people who use wheelchairs and mobility devices by the end of 2017. So we're now almost at the end of 2018, and the amount of tram stops that are accessible to people who use wheelchairs and mobility devices is currently 17% in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. And there's these new tram stops going to be rolled out on Sydney Road. They're not going to be accessible. Um, and there was a, some protests held in the last few weeks about this. So, you know, it is an ongoing issue that, you know, the the lack of um, acknowledgement of uh, people's, uh, you know, varying needs uh, when it comes to disability. And I've just got a little bit of audio I wanted to play from uh, Carolyn Bowditch, who is the first ever uh, person with a lived experience of disability to be the Executive Director of Arts Access Victoria. So that's really um, uh, quite a, a thing in itself. But I just wanted to play this audio because I think it speaks really well about why disability pride is an important thing to strive for. Disability is non-discriminatory, as we know. It doesn't care about the colour of your skin, where you come from, what language you speak, what your socioeconomic class is, how old you are. Disability can permeate all of it. But I think a lot of people forget that. We, as disabled people, are regularly operating, living and surviving in a, def- in a deficit model, in a world that doesn't necessarily welcome us, or value or reward what we bring and give to the world, but sees us often as an inconvenience, an expense and as unimportant. But today, I have the best job in the world. This mural demonstrates Larissa's incredible ability to encourage and give people confidence to come out as being disabled and not to be ashamed, but to be proud to be proud to be part of a community or a tribe that often gets overlooked, to be proud of the diverse and beautiful bodies we live in, to be confident to move through that internalised shame and find a voice to tell it like it is, to say what needs to be said and know what comes out is important, valuable and valued. So I just thought those comments... Um, were fantastic and just a really good counterpoint to the idiocy of Pauline Hanson's moves late last week to get the Senate, a largely white group of powerful Australians, to acknowledge that it's okay to be white and somehow start this discussion that white people need the strength to come out of some kind of white closet and be proud of their heritage, you know. And I, I think it's really important to... to assert that reverse racism doesn't exist because there is not the history of erasure and policy that targets you for the colour of your skin when you are white. And you can see that even today, not historically, but right now in the way that crimes are reported, uh, 
regularly in the mainstream media. For an example, on Saturday night, Channel 7 News ran two stories, one about a moron in regional Victoria, who a violent moron who ran down scores of emus for fun uh, and, and murdered them on a, on a road out, out in northern Victoria, I think his name was Jacob McDonald, who's the name of the man accused to have done this. Uh, he recorded himself doing it. He seems to have admitted it in an interview. Uh, but his race wasn't a part of that report. He was just a, a foolish young man who had done something stupid and had some friends who he thought he trusted, uh, who apparently dobbed him in, you know. So maybe he's just, so really in his interview, it sounded like he was he was the victim. Next, we had a, a presentation of uh, what was dubbed by Channel 7 News as bullying at Northland Shopping Plaza, which was really confronting footage of groups of young white women beating up other white women uh, as some kind of you know, I would call it gang violence or an, an assault. Um, these are these are high school age children, and the only person to use the phrase gang violence uh, and gang mentality in this Channel Seven news piece were not the journalists, but it was the the woman whose daughter had been beaten up, and she said these are thugs. These are you know all of that coded language that is used. But again, the race of these women was didn't need to be announced because we don't have a racist society when it comes to white people. So I just wanted to say that these two things, the need for um, you know, a community like the, uh, the, the community of people with disabilities, does have a long history of being ignored, erased, vilified, um, simply for who they are. Pauline Hanson and other white Australians do not have that history, and to say that they do is wrong. Here's the thing. I've got a quote... Uh, that I think can really relevantly tie in with everything that you're saying here, Jackson. I feel a little bit ill, just like that whole time that you're kind of like, um, yeah, inform informing me of these things, particularly in the media. Not that I'm surprised, but um, yeah, really, it, it, it's quite sickening. Um, so I've been studying a little bit of Orwell um, and Huxley in preparation for this past to totalitarianism panel on, on Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Um, and this quote, it just really resonated with me as you were kind of talking about this. So... Um, All that was required of them was a primitive patriotism, which could be appealed to whenever it was necessary to make them accept longer working hours or shorter rations. And when they become discontented, as they sometimes did, their discontent led nowhere because being without general ideas, they could only focus it on specific petty grievances. The larger evils invariably escaped their notice. Um, and I, th- I feel like this is exactly what the mainstream's doing. Like it's getting this discontented working class like um, energy, and it's kind of like um, placating it into primitive patriotism and this patriotic perspective of white pride, um, and yeah, villainizing and race baiting to kind of um, uh, like masquerade the the um, the systemic issues that we're continue- continuously facing. Well, I wanted to, um, continuing kind of on this topic a little bit as well, um, Australia's favourite um, white pride senator, Fraser Anning, um, sent out a really kind of interesting, I guess, tweet over the weekend, which said, this is his tweet, the real goal of the safe schools commo perverts is absolutely nothing to do with safety in schools or compassion. It's all about destroying the traditional fabric of our society, corrupting our youth, and creating Gramsci's nightmare vision of a Marxist utopia. Well, my first thought was that I'm so I'm surprised that anyone in this Australian Parliament knows who Gramsci is. Um, 
So I, I found that kind of alarming and interesting at the same time. Um, I hope he's read some. But uh, yeah, I, I just wanted to um, perhaps, if um, Senator Anning is listening, point him to a, another quote uh, quote of um, Antonio Gramsci, who's a great um, socialist, anarchist um, theorist and activist of the you know, Italian left in the past. And Gramsci says, if you beat your head against the wall, it is your head that breaks, not the wall. So perhaps um, Senator Anning might want to, you know, have a think about that. And I think if that is secretly what's happening with the Safe Schools Program, then that's great. I look forward to the... They should um, put that on the front cover. ...socialist cater that's being built for the um, forthcoming revolution. And the recognition of, um, you know, acknowledging and... uh dismantling uh, hegemony. That would be great. I think that's what we're all calling for, is it? Well, Gramsci did um, talk about, you know, school schools and institutions like that will need to be a part of, you know, the revolution of educating people through alternative means that, you know, all of the state, state apparatus is a part of the capitalist machine and you need to dismantle all of those things in order to kind of, you know, build class consciousness. So... It does kind of indicate that Anning has perhaps read Gramsci. So, mm, very interesting. Good idea. He did um, also put up an amazing tweet uh, late last week, uh, amazingly awful. Uh, he said, In critical theory, ethnic and religious minorities, radical feminists, sexual deviants, third world immigrants, and antisocial criminals could take the place of the proletariat to create a post communist revolution deconstructing traditional values and the white family. <laughs> He, he tweeted that on the 19th of September at 3.57am, wow. I might add. Uh, unless, <laughs> I don't know if it's a dummy account who's doing this hilarious stuff, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'm not sure whether those groups will um, take the place of the pol- proletariat. I think many of them are already in the proletariat <laughs> and all that he's really doing is galvanising opposition towards him with these crank comments. I'd like to, uh, you know, I'd generally be loath to um, read out other... You know, comments on ne- tweets, but I never read out Fraser Anning's tweets again. That's a promise. <laughs> um, the, I just the first um, reply to his tweet is from someone. I won't read their names, but it says, "Why do you care? You were three D printed by the IPA." <laughs> and then, um, disturbingly, a lot of the other tweets below that actually seem to support Fraser Anning and uh. wondering why no one else has pointed this out. So. There you go. I didn't know Gramsci was still so widely read um, outside of the kind of you know. Far left, so that that's great. Um, but yeah, anyway, um, I also just you know we there was a huge double page spread in the Age on the weekend talking um, I- interview kind of um, fluff piece with Tony Abbott, um, in which he says you know he's got six more years at least that he wants to stay in Parliament. Um, Goody. He doesn't rule out a further challenge, although you know he thinks that the government now has a, a quote fighting chance because. Scott Morrison is in. Um, but, you know, I think that what we... There are obviously still people within the Liberal Party that are trying to oust him, but disturbingly, um, he, you know, looks like sticking around in politics and whether, you know, it seems unlikely he would get a chance to be leader again unless, you know, they lose the election and they want someone to kind of just warm the seat for a while. Even more disturbingly is part two... Uh, page two of the... Um, article has uh, him in his speedos. Well, 
Um, were there any other aspects of the alternative news you want to cover before we move on? To- I'm just thankful radio is not a visual medium. I, I quickly just want to do a shout out that um, if if anybody hasn't, the ABC did this really interesting production called Leave No Dark Corner about uh, China's digital dictatorship. Mm. Uh, and it's a possible view into our futures, uh, which is quite horrifying and very um, kind of uh, like mirroring black mirror mm. in, in many ways. Mm. Social ratings and social, yes. the, the temerity to call it social capital is pretty full on. Mm. Mm. Yes. Exactly. For those that. who haven't seen it, it's yeah, um, gruesome. But you can on iView, um, yeah, and definitely in preparation to a path to totalitarianism on Wednesday is well worth checking mm. out. For sure. Well, I might just play um, a couple of community announcements and we'll um, come back with an interview with Steve Wilson. for the launch of the 2019 How to Make Trouble and Influence People Diary on Saturday the 6th of October from 3 to 6pm at the Old Bar, Johnson Street, Fitzroy. There'll be readings as well as music from Cold Hands, Warm Heart and Laura McFarlane. Entries free. Proceeds from the diary sales and 20% of the afternoon's bar takings will be donated to 3CR and the Rainforest Information Centre. So come read, drink and be merry. How to Make Trouble and Influence People Diary launch. The Old Bar, Saturday 6th of October, 3 to 6pm. See you there. 3CR supporter. The Environmental Film Festival Australia is on again. See the impact of climate change and meet heroes fighting for justice. Witness the beauty of nature and hear the sounds of our world. Meet the filmmakers and experts inspiring change and join the conversation to create a sustainable future. Face the facts, face the future, face the films. The Environmental Film Festival Australia, in Melbourne from October the 11th to the 19th. Tickets at effa.org.au. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. Uh, Steve Wilson uh, is the president of the Stony Creek, Friends of Stony Creek uh, Landcare Organisation, and he joined us briefly last week to talk about the ongoing impacts of last month's huge industrial fire in Melbourne's west. And we heard that toxic runoff from the burning chemicals and firefighting agents like foams had run into the ecologically significant Stony Creek, which runs through Crookshank Park in Yarraville, down to the mouth of the bay at Spotswood. It actually runs way further up north as well, all the way to St Albans. But Stephen joins us again to talk about a recent announcement from the state government. Steve, thanks for joining us this morning. So, Steve, a fortnight ago, you and others wrote a letter requesting government officials to come down and see the state of the Stony Creek Reserve, see the dead animals and plant life. Did they come down and visit? No, no, they didn't. I'm not aware of any any, uh, visits at all. And yet they have uh, announced a fairly significant cash injection. They've announced a million dollars for clean-up, adding to the 600000 already committed by Melbourne Water. Now, that sounds at first blush like a lot of money. Are you happy with this outcome? Uh, look, it's a good start. Uh, I'm not sure... Well, I'm not a financial expert, but I'm not sure how far that money's going to spread because of all the damage to the creek and, and the later rehabilitation. So... I see it as a good start, uh, you know, the first step, and we'll have to see what, what happens after that. 
Mm. It, it does sound good in mm. theory, but it is an election mm. year and um, yeah. it, it doesn't seem like an issue you can just throw money at and fix. What are your concerns about the way this has been announced and um, where, the, you know, where that money will actually be directed towards? Uh, I think the main first concern is I, there was no consultation at all, really. Uh, maybe they talked internally to the departments like EPA and Melbourne Water, but the first we heard of it was like you know an hour before it actually got announced. So we 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 concerned about how they worked out where the money was supposed to go, what was it based on? Uh, did they look at some of the tests that were done? On the creek, to make sure, you know, work out where the where the balance of money should go as far as rehabilitation goes. We had a meeting with the uh, council and EPA in Melbourne Water and the uh, stakeholders Thursday, and really that was the first time we actually heard about how they're approaching the cleanup. So, uh, I think really they've they've made an announcement way before they actually work out how they're going to do it. Mm. There's been um, ongoing reports of the impact, not just on the wildlife and water quality in the area, but the impact mm-hmm. on people who live near the fire site. There's been reports of rashes, persistent migraines, mm. nosebleeds, mm. uh, breathing difficulties in children. Do you think it's yeah. actually safe to be- begin recovery work? Uh, yes, I do. Uh, the EPA were down there, well, my mum were down there doing a bit the clean up and they were wearing the, the proper suits and stuff so they're, they're very close to the creek when they're doing this they've been doing test cleanups like you know high sprays water spraying and different different approaches to cleaning up so they've been wearing the suits down there but you know you can sort of walk around the area now i wouldn't go in the water at such at the moment so mm. it's reasonably okay at the moment you know there's been people still fishing in the area do you think the government mm. has done a good enough job in uh, communicating to communities how dangerous these contaminated waters are? Uh, I think they have, but uh, I just find it strange that people would even try to fish down there, you know? It's... I guess they don't have the uh, regulatory powers of stopping fishing, but I find it very strange. Mm. So back in 2002, I'll let you go after this mm. one, and thanks for joining us. Yeah, um, sure. Back in 2002, Stony Creek was described as one of the most polluted waterways in Melbourne. A lot of local effort, including by your mm. group and others, have turned it at multiple points into a green sanctuary of sorts in the West, which mm. are rare. I see that Brimbank Council has recently announced a very large investment on the section of the creek that runs from West Sunshine to St Albans, the Upper Stony Creek Transformation. There's $11.35 yeah. invested so far. Um, will Friends mm. of Stony Creek participate in this greening? Uh, we were... Uh participated in some of the consultation, early consultation, but it's been run by Melbourne Water. They're, they're removing the concrete channel up there and uh, replacing it with a, a natural wetland, so we'll probably be more involved later on. Mm. Uh, but most of that money came from the cell, the uh, City West Water site, and some money from the government as well. But there are six, there's another concrete section further down which we'd like to see tackled in the future. Yeah, down around uh, the bottom of Sunshine and Brooklyn Way. Uh, no, the one I'm thinking actually is down near uh, in Yarrabool, down near Francis Street and uh, Williamstown Road between the two of those, yeah. Okay. So just uh, quickly, what do you think the potential is from these revitalised waterways? What do they provide to community when you turn these drains into, um, you know, wildlife sanctuaries essentially? Yeah, yeah. It, it provides an ecosystem as such, but it also provides uh, people with an opportunity to walk around in a more environmentally friendly area. So it brings wildlife in, it uh, 
you know, it actually stops uh, some of the pollution going down the creek, absorbs it sort of thing, and it just creates a natural width, natural area for people to enjoy. So it's a very uh, positive outcome. It also improves the quality of the water down the creek and improves the, uh, the plant life and insect life. has a huge impact, especially further down from that, that area they've been doing. So I'm very hopeful, yeah. Oh, well, thank you very much for joining us uh, this morning, Steve, and good luck no with the recovery work and your role in it. Yeah, we're getting a good close eye on it anyway. Okay. Cheers. You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast, and the time is 7.29 a.m. G'day, this is Ozzy Butler from Astronomy Class. You're tuned to 3CR on 855am or 3cr.org.au. If you like what you hear, please subscribe. Keep community radio alive. Peace. Enjoy. Have you been a patient at Monash Health? Then we need your help. Because we care for patients from so many countries speaking so many different languages, we need your help to make the patient experience better. To make a real difference, register to be a consumer advisor. Visit the Monash Health website, monashhealth.org. Monash Health is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio celebrating 40 years of 3CR is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. 3CR's Radical Radio book is now on sale for just $30. You can get your copy of 3CR's book at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history on sale for just $30. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast, 855am on your dial, or perhaps you're listening... Uh, to a podcast in the future from 3cr.org.au. Uh, and we're lucky to be joined in the studio now by Niharika Senapathy. Uh, welcome, Niharika. Thank you. Uh, she's a dancer and performer um, and collaborator and creator of a new show that's coming on at the Malt House uh, next week called Trustees, which is a work by the Belarus Free Theatre Company that was written uh, in collaboration with Australian artists and really for an Australian audience and about Australian issues. Uh, so it premieres, there's a preview on Friday, but I don't know whether that's open to everyone. And then it, I think it opens on October 3rd. 
So they worked with uh, local creatives including Dan Schlussler, Natasha Herbert, Tammy Anderson and Niharika here. So, uh, and Hazem. I think you missed someone. And who, sorry? Hazem Shamas. Hazem you Shamas. Thank you. That's, <laughs> I'm glad you're here uh, to fix that up. Um, so Trustees opens with a theatre company's board gathering to assess a suite of new draconian contro- controls on Australian arts funding. What sort of future does Trustees present? <laughs> Um, a bleak, <laughs> a cynical future at the beginning of the play, let's say. Um, but also actually not that far away from, let's say, what is happening right now, mm. I think. Um, it's kind of an exaggeration or a collection of all the things that you read and hear about in one place, which makes it seem like a horrible place to be but actually it's a kind of a reflection of the truth actually yeah how would you see the state of arts funding at the moment like what are some of the uh, negatives that you're talking about in the play highlights um well actually i mean the the beginning of the play is a forum and a debate actually and so um negatives meaning against arts funding i mean it does create a lot of administration for the artists <laughs> I think being one of the main points we kind of make mm. um I mean we actually we fight for both I think both sides of the argument but mm. I mean the situation of arts funding in Australia is what it is but it's also a lot better in other places of the world mm. um but I guess the the beginning of the play is presenting a future where arts funding no longer exists mm. So working with Belarus Free Theatre, uh, Natalia Koliada and Nikolai Kalazin, uh, were you aware or a fan of their work before you were approached to work with them? They've got quite a hefty mm. reputation, arrested yeah. multiple times <laughs> for their work, banned in their country of origin. What was it like to work with them? They're amazing. Yeah, I had heard of their work before. I'd seen both Burning Doors and, um, oh gosh, I forget the name, the one previous that came to Melbourne in 2013. And I Generation loved... Generation Jeans? Um, I saw Generation Jeans as well, so I'm yeah. like a fangirl. <laughs> but um, um, no, I did see their previous works and I was really blown away, actually. Amazing um, energy that they put on the stage and the performers in their works were so fearless and really unapologetic and kind of put their whole bodies on the stage. Like, it was amazing to see work where there was no distinction between like uh script choreography and it was just like a human person on stage mm-hmm. kind of fighting for what they wanted and what they need and kind of saying what they needed to say which can't be said anywhere else mm. like it was kind of it was really um that that kind of necessity to be in that theater saying those things at that one time with that audience like it was really po- that that energy is really potent in their shows mm. and i loved yeah i loved that about their work so when i heard about being part of this one i was kind of excited and nervous <laughs> but yeah working with them's been incredible it's been amazing we've recently kind of heard this criticism of kind of um you know with with trump and the kind of buffoon like nature in the way that he kind of operates that you know, critiquing the kind of comedy of that satire, you know, is is dead and we shouldn't allow that kind of thing because mm-hmm. modern day life is, is a satire in itself. You know, I guess, like, what place do you think, you know, theatre and art has in the kind of modern world we live in? <laughs> I guess the amazing thing, I mean, I don't know how 
politically aware I can speak. I don't want to say something I don't know what I'm talking about. But what I can talk about is the experience of in the studio and in the process of this and unraveling issues and talking about things that is usually dismissed in kind of everyday conversation and actually Mm. giving a space to be able to discuss things kind of on both sides of the the wall no pun intended (laughs) but um the um it's been quite amazing that in a in an art space in a safe space like that that and with comedy and with humor like you can kind of talk about anything Mm. and it's been amazing that like with the group of artists that are in the room together who come from a extreme range of backgrounds who have real life experience about a lot of like kind of horrible things that happen that you can kind of talk about those things with humor with humility at the same time and that's kind of been amazing to um realize the place of the theater to be able to say things that you wouldn't usually say Mm -hmm. um yeah and that you can say things 40 minutes into a play that you would never say 10 minutes in, you know, you can kind of, uh, the theatre and art space can seduce you into being ready to hear something that you wouldn't usually feel like you were ready to hear. It's quite amazing. Yeah, and people go to the theatre to have those that mm, experience definitely. that you're describing mm. get slowly sucked into a space they may not have expected mm. to go. I was really struck by the tagline of this show, Trustees. Mm. It says, interrogating the great Australian <laughs> silence. And you've been talking about the unspeakable or the unspoken mm. in our society. What are these? What are we afraid to speak of or what goes unsaid that the play um, explicitly mm. deals with? Explicitly, we talk about Indigenous issues and the way First Nations people are treated in this country and uh, have been, and the history that has been dismissed. Definitely, that is an undercurrent of the whole work. Um, in immigration, refugee issues in Australia, the way that is talked about and um, considered, we, I mean, but then there is speckled kind of a lot of things: sexuality, um, colonialism, white. Uh, space being taken up by white men (laughs) and um like I mean but it kind of we unravel a lot of those things but actually the more I kind of delve into the work now that it's we're kind of really at the end of the process and I start to understand what it's about I feel like it for me the work is really unraveling the way we deal with those things that you don't really talk about or the way you deal with confrontation or kind of about it's kind of about ways of communicating like how to find the right words or how to not know what to say or what does your body do in a situation where you are confronted with something every day it withdraws it resigns it kind of blocks up it it dismisses things like that in a sense the great australian silence is maybe the the turning the blind eye or like just looking the other way mechanism that we all have because you can't possibly take on everything in all the suffering in the whole world but then I think the play beautifully brings you into considering how you could approach that sort of information maybe in your daily life and brings you back at things hopefully brings you closer to finding just human connection and that it's in the end about one person and another person and if we held hands like that's connection it's really corny but like I mean it's kind of the only way you can start to understand someone else's life 
is in that very direct, very real, let's take the walls away and let's just, um, let me just hear what you have to say. I think yeah. one of the things, mm. like, as someone sitting in the theatre is, you know, sometimes those conversations can be really hard to have, you know, like, for someone confronting the history of, of colonisation in Australia and the underlying issues of, um, you know, a, a white man sitting in a theatre space thinking about his own privilege and all those kind of things. And, you know, it can be really difficult in a conversation sense, but throughout the time of the play, they can kind of sit there themselves and reflect on it and, and feed off of what the performance is giving them. And I think that's something that theatre has, which, um, you know, a lot of other mediums don't. Wonderfully immediate theatre. Yeah, you know, you're so it, present in the space. And it takes away those labels as well, I think. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I believe that theatre is a safe space that you feel... You have authority of your own, an agency of your own experience within the theatre, that is, and that you can read into it however you want. And it's mm. kind of a, it's. I think that I hope that the play takes people away from the labels and things that they feel might they might have been forced to identify with, mm-hmm. in order to just sit there as a human and listen and maybe feel something that they um, usually don't give themselves time to and i guess equally for um you know aboriginal people other people that are connecting on a first basis with the issues as well they can sit there with that and knowing that um somebody is telling a story that is their story or relates to Mm. them as well yeah Mm. definitely Uh, i you touched then on the physicality of the show and also Mm. on the physicality of belarus free theater generally now your background your practice is as a dancer and a choreographer how's it been you know what working with creators that are so, you know, kind of verbally didactic mm. and political and blending that with your practice? How's that worked in rehearsal <laughs> and creation? It's been a really interesting process for me. Um, uh, I find that Natalia and Nikolai, they work really similarly to a dance process. So when I came into this, I didn't kind of believe that there was much difference between a theatre artistic creative process and a dance creative process but actually I found it quite different (laughs) I mean maybe it's obvious to other people but um but I feel like when Natalia and Nikolai they work really like a dance work it's all devised everyone in the room contributes and collaborates to respond to provocations or tasks um in our own way and so in that sense I felt really at home as a dancer in this kind of space that isn't my most you know the place where I feel the most comfortable Mm -hmm. um but in that sense yeah I guess there's been um room to respond physically always and I think Natalia's um number one quote is show me with your body (laughs) kind of and when we have questions or when something comes up um that we're you know the and then erupts a huge discussion she's usually there sitting there being like show me with your body don't tell me um which is kind of a great um undercurrent to this work i think um that's funny i can just imagine that being yelled many times across the uh rehearsal i mean it's like it's really interesting with it from a dancer's perspective that's how we operate really it's like you you get up and you do it because Mm. there's no other way to there's, you can't talk about doing the dancing. You can only just dance. And so the, that kind of culture of just getting up and exploring whatever's being given to you, mm. regardless of what you think about it, is just kind of – it's really deep in that culture. Um, whereas because theatre works with m- the material of words and content and that's, of that sense, there is – 
definite need to ask why all the time you know if someone asks you to provoke provokes you with can you respond to taboo issues in australia you're going to ask why <laughs> and then that's a that's a really useful way into considering how you respond to that but i guess the discussions can as we all know discussions can go forever in an infinite loop and at a certain point you have to show someone what you mean yeah mm. Uh, so you've been working with Australian writer Dan Schlusser on this, who I saw, you know, describes his own work as full of huge risks, exploring impossible texts, grand ideas, foundational philosophies. How has it been to work um, with him and with the other Australian collaborators you're working with as well? It's been absolutely amazing um, for me to step in a room with actors who are so experienced, writers who are so experienced, um, to kind of guide the process in the way that we all feel is what we that that we own this show and that we own what we're saying it's been incredible um and i've learned like i learned so much from them and dan's incredible he's he provokes and listens at the exact right times he's like a wonderful kind of presence in the room and has offered some really full-on <laughs> scenes to this work i like they're really quite amazing um the other actors are just beautiful, open, vulnerable, strong performers who listen to each other and have kind of offered some really incredible stories from their real lives, um, from their, their histories, their parents, their grandparents, um, and, yeah, have really bravely shared these stories that aren't necessarily on a grand scale that like that um monumental but like in collection with everybody's stories together kind of create a beautiful um tapestry of what's maybe gone on in the last 100 200 years <laughs> in did, our collective histories i mean yeah yeah i did wonder about that you've got these kind of outsiders coming in to explore <laughs> the australian experience and then you've got a group of australians <laughs> What did you learn about, you know, your own history or this country's history mm. and what do you think they maybe misunderstood before <laughs> they met you and started mm. working with, uh, with members who, who have, who have mm. kind of lived the, extra, the Australian experience, as it were? I've been thinking about this a bit. I think um, actually I feel like as a group, even though we're all in, like we're all really passionate and keen there is a level of resistance of talking about taboo that I didn't really anticipate was there I think the response very early was oh but there's we can talk about everything you know I mean that is true in Australia we can talk about everything like nothing's truly censored in a sense that you can talk about being gay you can talk about um, you can talk about colonisation on air. You know, it's not that something's going to be... You're not going to be sent to jail at any moment for not for saying something that's not allowed. But there is... Not yet, anyway. Not yet, anyway. I hope not. <laughs> but, um, yeah, but then when it really comes to it, there was a resignation to, I guess, go deeper and deeper and deeper. And I think that, um, yeah, Natalia and Nikolai were there as provocateurs to kind of press you into a place that you won't and I think more in a personal sense because in the end all these issues 
they you can talk about them on a global sense but it's it's not until you have to confront them personally and ask how you participate in the world on a daily basis is that anything's going to change or anything's going to you're going to confront anything actually real and tangible so for them to come for me to come in and ask me questions about my life and about my parents and about my upbringing and about how I went to school and asked me to like conjure up these stories that I and memories that I hadn't really thought about or given much time to and to start to consider it's like actually really changed my life Ugh, corny but <laughs> it actually has changed the way I see how I participate and I don't think that would have happened without their provocation in this way yeah mm. Uh, final question, and then I'll let you go. I know you've got a very busy schedule at the moment with it opening very soon. How do you think audiences will respond to the war- to the work? Mm. Uh, I think that they will feel full of information in a good way. <laughs> I think that they'll be touched and affected. And I hope that they take away some level of humility from the work um, and kind of a grounding or a stripping away of some sort of layers to come back to just human connection. Mm. Well, that sounds pretty appealing. If you feel like getting a bit more human over the next few weeks, get along and see Trustees, which is on at the Malthouse Theatre from the 3rd of October. Uh, You can get tickets through malthousetheatre.com. Niharika, thank you heaps for joining us in the studio this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. (laughs) That was Niharika Senapathy from Trustees Theatre. And you're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. And uh, right up next, we're going to have our regular program of Over the Wall. And this week, looking at the NDIS. You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. Hello, I'm Duncan Graham. Over the coming weeks, we'll be talking to various folks about the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Today, we begin with Josica Kooten, whose husband had a stroke in his mid-40s. In early September this year, I was fortunate to be invited to attend a conference called Fixing NDIS, which meant I could interview a bunch of people about their experience with the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Over the coming weeks, we'll hear excerpts of those interviews with a range of people, from disabled Australians to carers to disability service providers to academics about what's working with the NDIS and what's not. We begin with a two-parter. When Jessica Kooten's husband, a stroke survivor, transitioned from community-based providers to an NDIS plan, there were fairly typical problems and disappointments, but Jessica found a powerful way to fight for her husband's rights. She began by describing the stroke, its effects, and how pre-NDIS services helped her husband. 
Your husband had a stroke in his early 40s, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So he was 45, mechanical engineer, avid cyclist, not a smoker, not a drinker. And it was one of those unexpected freak things. Yeah, it was pretty catastrophic. The main disabilities that he incurred after the stroke, could you describe them? Yeah, so he ended up being paralysed on his left side because the stroke affected the right side of his brain and basically all the blood and oxygen was shut off to that side of the brain, so about two-thirds of it. He is also legally blind and has a thing called anonymous hemianopia, which is where you lose the visual field in half your eye. But basically part of that is also your brain believes that the only half that you see is what exists. So you have that kind of phenomena where you don't see half of the food on your tray, you don't read half of the newspaper headlines, um, you've got half of the world, but you don't realise it. The other things are that he, because he was a mechanical engineer, he was no longer able to work, so he was unable to understand any kind of visual, perceptual, spatial type of things, lost his sense of time, which is kind of handy in terms of Melbourne's public transport, because it doesn't worry him to take two and a half hours to get somewhere, but he was just not able to work again after that. Would he have been on uh, disability support pension after that time? So after his stroke, yeah, he's on a disability support pension and once his eyesight deteriorated to such a point that he's on a blind person's disability support pension, which is slightly different in that that's actually not means tested. You talked about some of the pre-NDIS assistance you were receiving. Can you give me just a quick grab bag of those providers, where they were coming from, so whether they were local, state, federal-based or any other? So our main provider, which was the case manager who kind of found the money for equipment and services and organised paying for those things, was a local community service in Eltham. And the other services and supports that we got were some ongoing support from the Royal Talbot Hospital, where he was a patient there for uh, quite a few months. And also from Guide Dogs Victoria, not many people know that they actually have an acquired brain injury program, which is for people who have lost their vision because of a brain injury. So they're not just about dogs. And they were great in terms of for him to relearn to scan his visual field. Like, as I said before, he only thought half the world existed, but he actually, if he turned his head, he could see the rest of the world. But also to teach him how to navigate public transport and to create, I suppose, new maps in his mind about how to get to certain places. And then another really great organisation, which is also just a grassroots Melbourne-based organisation, is BrainLink. So they had a lot of funding to support carers in the peak of all the chaos, I could go on a retreat, go to workshops and hear some information sessions and things like that. So they were great. It sounds like it's kind of an informal plan that he was under at that time, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. Look, my main concern was that he got what he needed and not to understand the ins and outs of how that was all funded and what the machinations were in the government as to how that all worked. So once he got a uh, semblance of care. I believe that he ended up with some kind of linkages package, which is a source of funding, I think, before you could get some kind of permanent type of funding from the department. And because they're based in the community, they were also, you know, linked with uh, Rotary and those other organisations. They knew the people who ran the gym, so they were able to negotiate something around 
accessing that service. So, you know, they know the people around, they know the community and they know the services that are out there. And even, like, with equipment, right? So they said, oh, you need a ramp. Actually, we've got one in the basement because we got one back from somebody else, you know. So it's kind of a lot of, I suppose, that collective type of wisdom and knowledge that made things work. Yeah. Then along came the National Disability Insurance Scheme, and with it, echelons of new bureaucrats between Josica and her husband and the new pots of money and coordination. Josica began by explaining some of the new gatekeepers that you'll have to get through. Case manager, planner, plan delegate. Can you give us a bit of a window into what these people do? Okay, so the case manager, they call it something else in the NDIS now, case coordination or whatever, doesn't matter. So she was like my go-to person. So I said, look, he needs a new wheelchair. Okay, right, I'll organise it. So she organised the OT assessment. She tried to find pots of money to get that. You know, she'd arrange it with him to go and do all of that kind of thing. So she's like having your personal assistant for all those healthcare needs. Uh, because I haven't got time to find an OT. I haven't got time to get quotes from providers and things like that. So case managers usually come through, uh, I suppose, an NDIS-approved provider. So an organisation may or may not provide personal carers that come and do showering and things, but they might just have a whole bunch of case managers. Now, the planner is someone who is, I suppose, the face of the NDIS, and that's the person that you go to or they come to you. And in the bad old days, they used to just ring people. And they're there, I thought, to do a bit of an assessment, see what your needs are, what are your goals in life, and how can the NDIS help you achieve those goals, right? And then kind of work with you to develop this plan and then components of your plan would have a dollar amount attached. And then that would go off and then there's another person who sits above the planner, which is the delegate. And the delegate is the person who is, as I understand it, under law, responsible for approving those plans and to assure that what's in those plans comply with the legislation so that even though I might say oh you know he wants to keep going to the gym because he's found that very beneficial that's not something that they fund that should never appear in a plan so you know maybe they should be a bit more honest say this is his goal but that's not funded right the delegate is kind of like this mysterious dark person in the background that's got the rod, I suppose, that the planner, in essence, knows that their performance is clearly based on the rate at which they can get plans approved, right? So if they do something wrong in the plan and the delegate says, no, that doesn't meet the guidelines and that has to go back, that's not a good thing for them, right? But it's a terrible thing for us. You had a plan that was in some ways quite parsimonious and I think your main objection is that there is a strange, perverse incentive written into the procedures of the department and of the NDIA that they don't want to show clients the plans before they're submitted to the delegate. That's exactly right. I behaved like a compliant citizen. I would be part of the process and didn't make any demands, just went through that process. And it was only until we got the plan that I thought, hang on, this is not right. Like most NDIS participants and their families, the plan devised by the NDIA was a surprise, concocted without participant input after the initial planning meeting. 
Next week, Josica will conclude her interview explaining how she used media and the political class to get a more just outcome for herself and her husband. We thank Josica for her time and insights. More next week. Welcome back to Monday Breakfast on 3CR, and you, uh, you've been, oh, that was over the wall that you've been listening to, and it is currently 8am, um, I'm not sure the exact temperature, I'd say slightly warmer than last week, um, Jackson will no doubt come up with the um, more pronounced um, temperature later in the, in the program. Um, but right now, we're lucky to be joined, um, talking about another another play, which I think is great, um, two political kind of works that we're talking about. Um, so there's a, converse, there's a play called the, A Conversation, um, which is being put together by Powder Keg Players, and it, it's a part of a trilogy by probably Australia's most well-known playwright, I guess, David Williamson. Um, and it's going to be on uh, in at the Dempster Park Hall in North Sunshine from the 5th to 20th of October. And we're lucky enough to be joined uh, in studio by Kerry Davies. Thanks a lot for joining us, Kerry. Hi, James. Thanks. Hello. Hello. Um, so, the, the the a conversation it it deals with a kind of community conferencing call uh, of, um, you know, w- which is something I guess that was you know a lot more prevalent in. Um, our legal sector in in the courts and has really been taken away over the last few years as a a means to kind of get uh, you know a, a criminal and their victims to sit together and to go through a process of trying to deal with um, you know what happened in the crime and what how they can move forward. So a conversation explores you know quite a violent crime as murder and rape and the um, perpetrator and the um, the victim or the victim's family, I guess, and the kind of conversation which mm. happens from that. Yeah, so it it sort of happens in a one room with with everyone present, but the perpetrator actually isn't present. The perpetrator is incarcerated and is heard via a recording, a recorded statement. So it's it's sort of the two families: the family of the perpetrator, the family of the victim that come together. It's quite a kind of full, I guess, confronting topic to, um, to to take on. And I guess, you know, what were the initial kind of first um, readings and, and first um, rehearsals like? Really interesting. The, the director, um, Lee, has been wanting to get this show up for uh, quite a while, a good few years, and he's actually attempted once before. Mm-hmm. And he's gone through a process where he was sort of getting cast members who were then dropping out and he actually wasn't ag- able to stage it. He couldn't, could not get it on, you know, the first time. And then has managed to get a cast together this time, but not without the same thing happening. And look, it's only a theory, but I think people come and they read it and they do a couple of rehearsals and they can't handle it and they have to be replaced because Mm. they quit. And um, we've got a really good cast that we sort of, I think Lee was getting to that 
it's coming to the wire point, will this go on or not, when we finally got a couple of cast members just sort of in at the last minute who are absolutely fantastic. Um, with still enough time to rehearse it properly because it's so big mm. that you don't want to just sort of go, oh, well, it'll be right in the night. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I guess, you know, any it's a conversation is part of a, a trilogy which has um, the central character, Jack Manning, mm. who... Um, we were just talking off air is is um the kind of I guess the worker in in this situation who kind of facilitates the discussion. Um, but I think yeah, anything I guess there's twofold is that the content um, you know at any time and I guess particularly at the moment with the kind of discussions happening in in society that it, it is a full on topic to kind of mm-hmm. discuss. And then you know anything by David Williamson is a really kind of challenging thing as a performer mm. to take on as well because it's such a um you know huge weight of mm. of um expectation and all of those kind of things in the theater world as well yep look his language is brilliant the the way that he writes and the rhythm in it all those sorts of things is amazing it is really hard to learn mm. at, at times because the way he puts words together sounds so um it has such impact and sounds really impressive but if you don't get it right, there's just even things. Uh, my daughter's been helping me learn my lines, and she's like, "No, you say right at instead of just at in that one." And mm-hmm. I'm like, "Does it matter?" <laughs> <laughs> but when you actually do say it right, you kind of hear it. Mm-hmm. It's it's so much better. So exactly, there's a lot of pressure on in the sense that you you always want to do justice to a writer because you know they've they've done their bit. <laughs> you should at least honour that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think he kind of. He presents a challenge <laughs> in some of the ways that he strings a sentence together. <laughs> well, I think, um, well, just, you know, the, it says in um, information here I'm, I'm reading about um, what the play, kind of, some of the themes it explores about classism, and nature versus nurture, mm. toxic masculinity, and the devastating effect and wide reach that violent crime has on people. I think, you know, we've heard some of those kind of aspects of, um, you know, society of human psyche and things mm. mentioned more recently in relation to crime, but mostly those things are kind of left out. And I guess, mm. how does the play explore that? Yeah, I think it's really interesting because the play is also more than twenty years or about twenty years old mm-hmm. from from when he wrote it. So it is sad that it's still so relevant. Mm. Um, Obviously, not much is going to change in in such a short space of time, considering you know hundreds of years of history. But after, look, it's really, one thing I will say as a feminist is that I do think that David Williamson can write women pretty two dimensionally. Mm-hmm. They seem to have quite a few cliches going on and that sort of thing. Um, but the fact that the man really can write does does give you something to work with. Even you know, having said that. Um, and I do, but then you know exactly like then to give it its due in the sense of how he's exploring a topic that is so far away from what most people have the courage to write about um, is is really impressive. I suppose what happens is that throughout through the characters, which are you know grieving parents, um, but who are grieving in very different ways of of the woman who was the victim, her father and her mother are there, and and the way that they've both dealt with it is is brought out in the conversation and is is very different and even has its own conflict so so you sort of have this 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 play that starts with two families who are opposed to each other i suppose and and have their own pain and anger 
but then as it progresses you you see what's going on within those families themselves mm. and what that kind of thing does there there's not just two sides i suppose and um the way that it explores those topics is just through different people's opinions and attitudes i suppose that mm. come out in the dialogue yeah mm. um and that makes it really interesting because different p- people you wouldn't expect as sort of in some ways aligned quite unusually and then then they're at each other's throats a little bit because the 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 issues do cause a lot of arguments um, in in our real world, I suppose. And mm. I think that what he's really done is almost obviously really observationally listened and and had a lot of those arguments, perhaps himself, mm. Mm. and and you know created these characters that can sort of take those stances. Um, and and have a have a situation where people can walk away perhaps having those conversations hopefully a little bit more informed because he's clearly done a lot of work in trying to make sure there's there are all the facets in there not just his agenda or his opinion yeah. although being Williamson that's pretty clear too <laughs> I think <laughs> but people would have to judge that for themselves so Kerry as an actor in this performance you're playing the mother of the perpetrator of the yeah. accused yep. um, but you also work in the um, sexual violence space or counselling? I work in family violence. Family violence, I should yeah. say, yeah. yeah. Um, how's that been, you know, taking the side of, or uh, I'm assuming that the, the mm. mother of the perpetrator, you know, is a staunch defender of, of him and his rights? Perhaps I'm wrong there to make that assumption. That's a really good way to put it, actually, of him and his rights. She has a perspective that what he's done isn't the best, but, yeah, she's, she hasn't given up on him in a sense. Um yeah, at first I was really thinking, what am I doing? Who does this for fun? Because it's amateur theatre. I'm not getting paid for this one. And um, when they've got a, you know, full-time job dealing with violence. But I, what I was hoping and what has happened is that I wanted to have those kinds of conversations with people who were interested in exploring a story like this in this way. Um and that is what's happened. And, and you get sort of caught in your feminist bubble when you work in family violence. Everyone has that same starting point. Um, you know, there's a variety of, of um, arguments and conversations that happen within that space, obviously, and there's a lot of different types of feminists. But everyone who works in family violence is a feminist and comes from a feminist background and has a gendered lens about men's violence against women and and all that sort of thing so it's been really interesting working with people who care enough about this topic but don't actually have that kind of background and just getting that different perspective from each other and having that real conversation that, that the piece itself is kind of trying to explore has been fantastic and really opened up you know, my mind, my thoughts. Um, it's only recently occurred to me that, you know, even though you, you get to know your clients when you work in family violence and um, because it's from a feminist perspective, it's a strengths-based empowerment kind of approach where people are the experts in their own lives and they need to lead any support that you're providing based on their needs and, and you know, that's and the risks to them that they're identifying primarily. Um it sort of clicked and I thought, well, these... But then the nature of gendered violence is that these these women are sometimes the very last people who would ever identify as feminist or have any kind of connection or understanding to what we're doing when we're working with them. And it's sort of given me another level of thinking about how I will approach that when I'm working with people. Mm. Yeah. I think um, rehearsal spaces can often be a very... 
um, you know, people feel free to kind of be themselves and perhaps mm. behave in a way that they wouldn't, you know, other people, you know, like let their guard down and all that kind of thing. How is that kind of, you know, um, freeness and attitude that, you know, can have in that space kind of fitted with, you know, such a serious topic and mm. perhaps, you know, rehearsing scenes which are, you know, quite delicate in how they need to be put forward? Um. Look, I, I've felt safe right from the start. I think, again, the director, Lee Cooks, created a really, really good environment for everyone. Mm-hmm. Rehearsals usually end a good 20 minutes early and he reminds everyone to stay back and just try and sort of have a have a bit of social time, have a coffee, have a have a chat to him if you need mm-hmm. to, to debrief. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's also been generous enough to say that that doesn't have to be when he prescribes. It can be 2am and he'll answer his mm-hmm. phone. So... Um, and look, it's it's hard. You you get together a group of people, particularly when it is perhaps a, a community theatre event, and you 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 don't really know for sure. And it's mm. the first time I've worked with this company, so it's it's been quite amazing to be in a room full of people that you do feel safe and comfortable with and trust. Um, you know, you sort of wonder where's the dickhead, and they haven't appeared yet, so it might <laughs> be me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's um. It's led to, to to some powerful stuff. There's been a lot of tears, <laughs> um, but then there's also been some pretty dark humour. <laughs> um, yeah, because <laughs> that's where that's what we're dealing with. I yeah, think. yeah, yeah. And I think that you know, like you say, that humour and you know, just even the play itself, it's a way of confronting and dealing with these kind of um, you know really heavy and and you know really important conversations that mm-hmm. need to be had. I guess, um, you know, what do you think about or have you thought about kind of what the audience will, the type of audience that might come to the show and, and mm. where they will, where their head will take, you know, that journey as well. And mm. I guess that, I think that's um, really interesting what you said about the rehearsal space and I wonder how the audience might feel in those kind of moments mm. after the show mm. as well. Well, look, I do remember at the first read through, I mean, even with this kind of content, there were lines that made me laugh. They kind of don't anymore, and I'm looking forward to that experience of mm. it coming back when the audience come in because I think, you know, again, Williamson's brilliance is to be able to write some jokes into something like that. They're not um, at the expense of the material, obviously. They're cleverer than that, but um, they're there. There's there's moments that will help that lighten that because I don't think you could sit there for an hour and a half feeling incredibly intensely angry, depressed, sad, all the, you know, <laughs> all those heavy emotions without a little bit of relief. Um, but I think the the whole thing, like it's called a, a conversation and I think that that's going to be the result. I don't think it presents any solutions um, and I don't think that's what it's trying to do and, and you know, preachy theatre is pretty annoying as well. Um, but it presents... It presents the options, it presents the discussions and it presents some of the attitudes that are out there in the world, um, good or bad, and both. Um, so I think a lot of people will have their own sort of moments that they that resonate because it will validate or challenge their own opinions, hopefully challenge um, in some cases, but yeah. Yeah, uh, James also mentioned as well that it's a show that um, takes class into account when mm-hmm. analysing domestic violence. And we were having a discussion just off air before you arrived about the fact that theatre is often seen as a space for, you know, bourgeoisie, middle class, you mm-hmm. know, that it's not open to those uh, who may have less means. But 
Uh, is this part of the fringe, the conversation, or is it? No, operators? we start just after fringe finishes, actually. Okay. So no, we're not in the fringe festival. But where are you on, and is it affordable? Yeah, that's a really good question. I haven't t- checked how much tickets cost. <laughs> um, well, it's on in North Sunshine. Yeah. Um, it's a good start. Yeah. Um, at the Dempster Park Hall, which is Powder Keg Players' sort of home, um, it's it's basically your average town hall. It's not a specifically purpose-built theatre. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, lovely space and... I would imagine tickets are probably. I mean, tickets nowadays for a reasonably priced show are about twenty bucks. I don't reckon we'd be going outside anything like that. But I'm sorry, I didn't. Yeah, I, I just <laughs> we, should, we should have looked. Too. I did. I, I'll just bring it up. But I think it, it, it is. About, it's about twenty dollars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So about the price of a movie ticket, but yeah, a hell of exactly. a lot better. Oh, absolutely. Um, and look, it's interesting that you use the term domestic violence because I suppose the only other. Criticism, but I'm not sure it's a criticism I'd have of the play itself, is that it's it deals with that really rare happening of stranger danger, exactly. And really women are most at threat of violence in their homes from people they know. Mm. And unfortunately the rates of that are incredibly high. Um, You know, interestingly, it's men who are in more danger of being physically attacked statistically if they're out in the public on the street. Mm so, but in some ways, I, I can see that you know, especially even twenty years ago, it's and even now, it's still groundbreaking to try and turn that into an actual conversation. It's still something people struggle with and don't want to have. Um, but you know, and and it may not may or may not be his place. It's certainly not mine to say what he should be writing about. Um, but it would be interesting if if you know we could get past that kind of. That being the only thing we're comfortable talking about because that perhaps is something we see as being able to distance ourselves from happening to mm. us. The um, type of thing that people say, well, mm. men, men like me wouldn't do that. But exactly. it is just every day. Yeah, it's yeah. important. Uh, yeah. I know we, we've painted um, a heavy picture of what the play is, but and I think sometimes, you know, that can turn people away from mm-hmm. seeing something. So I, I certainly I don't want to end on that. And I think that, um, you know, clearly by when you go and see a piece of theatre like this, it's not you're not just confronted with, you know, all of that kind of, um, you know, these confronting kind of ideas and whatever, you know, you're confronted with a production that touches on and brings these kind of ideas to the fray. And it's not, you know, like um, Kerry was saying, there's humour and and there's, you know, like all kinds of things to kind of take in from this. And hopefully it's the the start or, you know, the the middle part of a conversation for the audience and Mm. a conversation that, you know, we need to be having all across um, society. Mm. So the the show, the tickets for the shows, um, $17 for concession and $20 for full price. And it opens on the 5th of October, running through to the 20th of October. And if you want to um, find out about the tickets, you can go to Powder Keg Players on Facebook and follow the links through there. The ticket's available online through TriBooking. Um, and I, I'd suggest, you know, get your tickets quick. That mm. makes... Um, makes everyone involved in productions feel a lot better when they see the um, ticket sales ticking over. Um, but unfortunately, we've run out of time to talk about this show today. Um, thanks a lot for joining us, Kerry. Thanks so much for having me. And um, we'll just play a quick announcement and come back with another interview. Are we on a path to totalitarianism? Are governments and technocrats developing technologies that hand them greater control over our lives? 
In the face of such far-reaching webs of control, what are we to do? With speculative minds Lizzie O'Shea, Timothy Eric Strom, and Jacob Grech, we're going to be exploring these questions and more through a live panel discussion. Tune in on Wednesday, September 26th from 7am on 3CR Breakfast, where we contemplate the societies of the future. Let's reclaim our minds from the cultural engineers. We know you love our 3CR Radical Radio t-shirts, and so do we. They're a bargain at $20 for adults and $15 for kids, and come in black, white, grey, and a cool light blue. To nab one of these beauties, drop into the station at 21 Smith Street, or order by phoning 94198377. Or you can visit us online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Come on, you know you want one. over Paris and you're listening to 3CR. Be proud, be strong. You have a smile that bring a tear to my eye. for a coat of wine Thick or thin Right or wrong In the cold and in the heat We'd cross over Smith Street To the end of the line Lane. 
up Gertrude Street We'd walk once more With just a few cents short And we'd stop at the builders To see who we could see Then we'd bite around Until we'd score A flagon of McWilliams Paul That was Charcoal Lane by Paul Kelly and Courtney Barnett, and very relevant um, to where we are, perhaps not where everyone's listening, because Charcoal Lane and, you know, the streets that Paul and Courtney are talking about are, you know, located around Fitzroy, and it's, uh, yeah, a lovely little song. And unfortunately, the the, uh, interview that we were um, going to play... uh, hasn't worked out so we're going to um, look to have that interview uh, in coming weeks yeah Melanie Poole from the Federation of Community Legal Centres uh, unfortunately couldn't speak this morning but I think it is really important to talk about this I'm dubbing it the law and order arms race that we're seeing between the two major political parties in the lead up to the November 24th election trying to outdo one another with their law and order credentials and drastically erasing our civil liberties and safety, I would say, uh, in the process. I'm sure everybody's seen the crazy arms and armaments that the police are being given. I'm not sure whether you're aware now, but if you... Under the laws that just passed, actually, sadly, on Thursday morning, they passed the lower house of government, these new laws that are going to mean that if you scratch an emergency services worker, yeah... Uh, if you assault them in any way, including police officers, if you were involved in a fray or defending a friend or a whole range of things. At a protest. At a protest, perhaps, you would go to six six months jail minimum and a maximum of three years. And there is nothing the judge can do to say that uh, uh, there are extenuating circumstances, um, such as being involved in a political rally. Um. So that is very concerning, as concerning as the anti-association laws that have been uh, also have just passed the lower house, I believe, and very serious penalties for using your car in any kind of interaction with emergency services. Using a car as a weapon can land you in jail for 10 years minimum. Uh, So there's obviously some concerns from the legal profession about the unintended consequences, not just the fact that mandatory sentencing is a scary um, precedent to set, 
but also things like if you are the victim of domestic violence and you think that if you call the police, your partner won't just be admonished or told to settle down but will almost certainly go to jail, you might hesitate in making that phone call and there could be some terrible outcomes for people who otherwise would have sought help in that situation. Just as one example of some of the problems with these things. But hopefully we'll talk to Melanie in the future. Well, right now, uh, you are listening to Monday Breakfast, and it's 8.27. I'll just do a, we'll just do a bit of a quick recap on the show, and then um, we'll just have a little bit of a preview um, for Wednesday's breakfast show. Um, so we did alternative news, and we talked about um, some of the disturbing um, white pride that is um, happening throughout Australia. Um, then we had a quick chat with Steve Wilson. We were following up on the West Footscray fire. Yep, I just wanted to give a shout out to Meg Kimber from City Limits for providing the audio of Caroline Bowditch from Access All Areas as well. Thanks to Meg, fellow 3CR volunteer. Uh, we also spoke to Naharika Senapathy from uh, Trustees, which is on at the Malt House uh, on the 3rd of October. And then we finished off with Kerry Davies from... A Conversation. A Conversation put on by the Powder Keg players uh, in sunshine in a few weeks' time. And we'll uh, post the links for those shows um, later today and people can um, find out more about seeing those shows if they're interested. Um, but well, just before we, we finish up, there's a um, show on the Wednesday breakfast that we've played a couple of announcements for already today, but Layla, you wanted to give people um, a bit of an idea about what the path to totalitarianism looks like? For sure. So this anti-association law is just one of maybe like 54 like illegal statutes that's come through like um, government and changed our legislation um, over the last uh, 15 years. Um, so all of them, although they may not be impacting your life like right now in the immediate vicinity, it's something that's like completely changing our political environment for like um, points of crisis in the future. Mm. Um, and it, like it, it, it's so horrifying. The, the more that I've kind of been researching into it, the more clear it is that we are edging towards a total totalitarianism state. Um, and before leaving, I just want to read this quote because it, it'll give everybody a bit of food for thought before like um, tuning on into the panel on, on Wednesday at 7am. So um, it's Huxley this time. So I brought Orwell out earlier. Now we've got some Aldous. Um, so the perfect dictatorship would have the appearance of a democracy, but would basically be a prison without walls in which the prisoners would not even dream of escaping. It would essentially be a system of slavery where through consumption and entertainment, the slaves would love their servitude and that's currently where we're at so i want to take in aspects of social media kind of our our political indifference and like how we're allowing these national laws to be pushed through and completely revolutionized um in a way that gives the government more control over our lives well listen in on uh, wednesday at 7 a.m and we've been monday breakfast thanks a lot for listening 3cr relies on the support of ethical organizations to keep our vital community of voices on air We'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall, and eco-friendly paper and printing outfit, Earth Greetings. You can check them out at nibs.org.au and earthgreetings.com.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. 
For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.